The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Civil War was once described by Winston Churchill as the last war fought between gentlemen. Americans have treasured the notion that our great national conflict was a brother's war, fought with courage but not real hatred. Our guest today begs to differ. The Civil War, he describes in his book, Confederate Rage, Yankee Wrath, No Quarter in the Civil War, is a war fought without restraint, where the execution of prisoners was the order of the day. It's an ugly topic, but one that cannot be ignored. And we'll discuss it today with author George S. Burkhart on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel where the world comes to talk. Answer the president's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a quiet Friday afternoon in October 2009. It's fall break here on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. We're having our last day of classes and a few days off to catch our breath, catch up on grading, studying, sleep, whatever else, and get ready for the rest of the semester. But although coming to you from East Carolina University, not speaking on behalf of the university or its uh, administration or the taxpayers who pay the bills, just doing the afternoon job, chatting with you about the Civil War. Our guest today will, as always, speak for himself as well and not for any other organization. It is uh, uh, football season as we bring up these days uh, uh, on the shows this season. Uh, the East Carolina Pirates are doing all right. They've won a couple games. Uh, but more importantly, uh, the Greenville Stars, the girls 14 and under soccer team that the world waits to hear about each week. Uh, well, we lost last week one to nothing, and the uh, murmurs are spreading through the parental ranks about time for a coaching change, but I'm clinging to my my guns uh, fiercely. Not literal guns. Uh, there was a story in the news this week about a soccer mom who carried uh, a gun to the field a few years ago and ended up dying in a domestic gun violence incident. Uh, the 
irony is deep, but uh, but tragic. Uh, our soccer games are gun-free uh, and unfortunately offense-free, as we lost one to nothing last week. Uh, but the girls will be out again tomorrow. I'll keep you up to date on that. But what we're really here for, of course, is to talk about the American Civil War. Um, thanks always to people with suggestions that they've sent in for future guests for the show and those who've sent contributions to the show at civilwartr at aol.com. Uh, if you use PayPal and send uh, uh, some cash this way, it will be used for the purchase of further books uh, to be read and discussed on the show. That's always welcome, and thanks to those who've done that. Thanks to other supporters, uh, including uh, uh, Ernie, a longtime listener, uh, who has generously contributed a disc of past shows uh, to help fill out the library here, one step closer toward getting a annotated website where you can find out exactly what was on each past show. Uh, don't know quite when that will happen, but uh, still have that in mind. Uh, and a greeting also to uh, Robin, a longtime listener in the UK, who is uh, putting on a, an event uh, a, for a fundraising raffle there, uh, as asked for, and uh, I have sent a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln, uh, which uh, they can use to raise you know, wh whatever amount of money they can get for that, uh, but I'm happy to contribute to that roundtable's uh, future well-being. They're having a, a very interesting Lincoln-based program this October, and I'm, I'm happy to be part of it in that small way. Well, today uh, we are talking about a subject that one might not be so happy to talk about. It, it's a look in, in many ways at the underside of the American Civil War. Uh, our guest is George S. Burkhart, uh, author of a book called Confederate Rage, Yankee Wrath, uh, the subtitle No Quarter in the Civil War. Mr. Burkhart, are you there? Yes, I am. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. Um, may I call you George? Uh, yes, of course. You've not been uh, formally introduced. Please call me Jerry. Um, I, I'm very happy to, to have you on today. Uh, the the book uh, that you have here uh, from Southern Illinois University Press uh, indicates that your your day job uh, uh, for many years apparently was as a newspaper publisher. Is that right? Yes, it was. Uh, and it says you published the smallest daily pop daily newspaper in California. Yes, that's correct. Now, Morning uh, Daily Observer. <laughs> I, I would bet I could make an even smaller paper if I tried. How, how do you get to be the smallest paper in California? Well, it wasn't too uh, difficult. It was the smallest daily in circulation in the whole state. There was one that came close, but we beat them. So I mean, was that a lasting struggle? You get too many subscribers, you just cut some people off to keep... No, no, no. It just, uh, <laughs> the Corning Daily Observer was published in a small town in Northern California, population 5,000. So there weren't that many subscribers available, that's all. Uh, now, <laughs> while you were publishing that... Uh, did did you have an idea that one day you might retire and write books about the Civil War? Has this been a long-time interest of yours? Well, yes, it has been a long-time interest to write about the Civil War and to study the Civil War. But, how, how did that interest get started? Well, I read about 
the crater, the Battle of the Crater, July 30th, 1864. And while reading and researching, I learned that the Confederates had slaughtered many black soldiers over there. And during that period, they also, or during that research, I learned that many referred to Fort Pillow. And that started me off. What's Fort Pillow? This is many years ago, mind you. And what was Fort Pillow? What, what does that have to do with anything? So then I studied uh, research Fort Pillow. And then there are references uh, in the Fort Pillow, uh, during the Fort Pillow research, about other um well, let's call them atrocities, if you will. Uh, that is to say, when the Confederates murdered black prisoners. So that started me off and took many years of research, primary research, to develop the idea that this is a widespread affair, a de facto uh, determination to eliminate black prisoners. Now, that, that's a... A hefty charge, and uh, in the beginning of your book, you talk about how other historians have not have never really come to that conclusion in the same systematic way that you do. Uh, how have other historians treated this, and why haven't they caught on to this? Well, many have mentioned it, have noted it in passing that this occurred, but that wasn't the thrust of their works. That is, a th- the, but it is the thrust of my work to determine how often this happened, to what extent. Uh, what uh, under what conditions and why? So well, that, go ahead, please. Well, so they did mention it. Many have mentioned it in passing, as I said, but not uh, to any extent nor in any depth. So that's the difference. I think. Uh, I mean, most listeners to this program are familiar, certainly, with the Battle of the Crater. Uh, Kevin Levin has been a guest on the show and has talked about it. Uh, and Fort Pillow as well has been something that uh, uh, that people certainly know about uh, or have heard of it. But it seems to me you're arguing that these are not should not be seen as isolated incidents. That these are only two, and there are uh, that they're just the tip of the iceberg. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, yes. Uh, well, they were not isolated incidents, and it began as soon as black troops appeared on the field and fought Confederates. It began uh, very early, as a matter of fact, um, as soon as, um, well, late 1862, before there was a formal organization of black troops by the federal government. And it began in um, 1862, as I said, and continued until the very end. So it was not an isolated, those were not two isolated incidents, that is Fort Pillow and uh, the crater. There are many, many, many more from east to west. And, and, and your book certainly lays out uh, a number of them. Uh, I mean, readers will get a chance uh, when they read this, they'll see that, that there is a lot of evidence for this, certainly. What, um, why does this happen? Why, why do... Well, let me ask a different question before we get to that, because that, that's really the, the big question to, to tackle here. The different question, is this a formal policy? Does the Confederate government say this is how we're going to respond to, to black troops in arms uh, by, by killing them when we capture them? No, not exactly. But it was certainly a de facto policy, even though it was a, a form, not a formal policy. 
But the government and the generals in the field uh, gave tacit approval to what occurred, to the elimination or the murder of captured black federal soldiers. No, it was not a, a formal policy, although uh, there are variations appeared in this, in that uh, at times, uh, well, for instance, uh, at Fort Wagner, when the Confederates captured many black prisoners, what to do with them, how to treat them, and that caused a lot of confusion and uncertainty. Uh, the how to treat them, how to execute them right on the spot, give them a trial, what? Um, um, there, they didn't know quite what to do. They feared uh, federal retaliation, of course, if they executed these people wholesale. And the federal, uh, the Confederate generals feared that if they had a hand in it, then they would suffer, their troops would suffer. So it wasn't um, uh, a policy, uh, that is a formally announced policy. At one time they would waver and say, well, execute them. Another time, no, 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 treat them uh, properly, treat them with kindness and so on. But not quite as prisoners of war. Um, make them second-class prisoners of war. So... The Confederates are in a difficult position in, in, in one way as to how exactly how to handle captured black soldiers, former slaves particularly. It became even more confusing when they had to, they caught um, soldiers, black soldiers, who were free men, who were free in the North. And then what about free blacks from the South? Ah, you see, it was very complicated business for the Confederates. But overall, throughout, there was a de facto policy of eliminating, exterminating, murdering the black soldiers because they were in revolt against their former masters. And the, and the price for that was death throughout the South. Well, that's really the, the key, I think, that they can't... Uh, uh, I mean, the Southern policy, it, you lay out the dilemma that, that Southern officers and Southern uh, government officials faced they couldn't simply treat the black soldiers as ordinary prisoners of war because that would be granting them a status as uh, as equal to white soldiers that would undercut the whole rationale of slavery. Well, yes. The equality was a key issue. If they treated them as um, prisoners of war, that did grant them, per se, a degree of equality, or for not a degree, but actual equality. So that, too, posed a problem. How to do, uh, and of course, the fact that there are soldiers and wear a federal uniform pose the same question of equality, which, by the way, also uh, concerned federal soldiers. To have black soldiers wearing the same uniform, fighting the same war on the same side, meant that, theoretically, they were equal to the white federal soldiers, which they did not like either. Well, that's an interesting point, which, which you make uh, in this book as well, that the the enrollment of, of black troops in the Union Army is, was problematic for both sides in some ways. It, it was uh, it was welcomed by uh, abolitionists in the North, but they were never a majority, and it was 
opposed by those in the North, uh, as you say, who, who oppose racial equality, which probably was a majority of the white uh, Northerners. Yeah, and it was it was certainly opposed by everyone white in the South. Yes, yes. So, so you've got these troops. So, so this means when, when a, a black soldier is captured, it really does put uh, the Southern captors on the spot in that they, if they treat that soldier as a soldier with the same dignity and, and rights a white POW gets, they're then they're 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 granting equality, and they don't want to do that. Now, one solution uh, you mentioned, uh, sudden the Secretary of War in, in the South proposed was to uh, uh, return them to slavery, to to sell uh, the, the the captured soldiers uh, as slaves. Uh, did that ever? Come oh out? yes, that happened uh, quite often, at least in certain at certain times in certain places. And when Forrest captured a large, large number of black soldiers during his railroad raid and in the fall of 1864, many of them, uh, them were returned to slavery. And when uh, at other times and um, other places, this also happened. Uh, but by that time, um, the South was fragmented in some ways as to... Occupation by federal troops, so it was not always possible to turn them to their original owners. So they became slaves of the Confederate government. Uh, for instance, uh, many of those captured by Forrest went to work on fortifications for the Confederate government. But at other times, too, they were re- actually returned to their owners, and other times uh, people claimed black soldiers as their long-lost slaves, and of course they were not originally their own slaves, but why not? Because slaves are valuable and provided free labor. So then people would step up and say, oh, yeah, sure, he's my slave, or escape slave, or this uh, two or three or four or five of them are my slaves. So that did happen, yes. Hey, the alternative of, of executing these people, as you say, then, would cost... Uh, to put it in, in plain dollars and cents terms would be a very expensive. Oh, sure. Thing to of do. course, a slave uh, was worth, what, uh, $1,000 at least. And of course, inflation, uh, there was considerable inflation in the South during the war, so that would raise their price uh, somewhat. Sure, it's a big loss, and $1,000 is a lot of money in those days. So, yes, it was um, better in some ways to return the slaves, the captured black soldiers, to slavery. And as far as the black soldier is concerned, that was a better alternative than execution. And uh, they fared much better as a slave than than in a prisoner of war camp, because there they were subject to some discrimination by Confederate guards and by the prison uh, authorities. So, yes, it would be better to return to slavery as, as a practical matter. As opposed to being uh, killed on the spot. Yes, or, as, and some as, an, as happened, a place in a prisoner of war camp. That did happen. There were many uh, black captives in Confederate prisoner of war camps. Well, this is a, a topic that definitely deserves further exploration. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back in just a moment. We're talking today with George S. Burkhart, author of Confederate Rage, Yankee Wrath, No Quarter in the Civil War. 
I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Fort Pillow is a familiar name for students who study atrocities of the Civil War. But was it just the tip of the iceberg? We'll find about some lesser-known incidents when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure. 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with George S. Burkhart, author of Confederate Rage, Yankee Wrath, No Quarter in the Civil War. It's a book that explores uh, a topic that is not uh, part of the romanticized notion of the Civil War. It looks at the the treatment of prisoners, uh, not, not in prison camps, but on the battlefield, specifically the execution of prisoners. Uh, the refusal to take prisoners, the murder of those trying to surrender, or those wounded on the field of battle. And to be more specific, the primary focus, although it does look at other things, is the uh, murder of black soldiers by Confederate soldiers. Now, this is, is uh, a topic that has long been uh, known in various incidents, as we discussed in our first section uh, the, the killing of black soldiers at the crater uh, or at Fort Pillow uh, are known to every student of the Civil War, but uh, are these the only incidents? And, and our, our guest today says, no, there are many others. But, uh, George, let me ask you a question about the motive for this. Uh, you mentioned in the first segment there that uh, uh, slaves were expensive, over $1,000 for a, a young male uh, able-bodied person. Uh, so killing uh, a black soldier who might otherwise be returned to slavery is, is uh, an expensive proposition. And this was, uh, again, you pointed out in our first segment, not uh, not the standard announced policy of the Confederate government, although there was some back and forth on the issue, uh, to simply uh, uh, execute 
black soldiers, but rather it became a de facto policy that on battlefields like Fort Pillow and, and many others, uh, the, prison, the soldiers simply refused to take prisoners. Uh, it didn't matter if a soldier tried to surrender, he would be shot on the spot. Now, my question is, how did that... Is there something in the, 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 the culture, the character uh, of the Southern soldiers that made that, that policy take shape, that de facto policy? Why did they do it? Well, yes, consider this. These slaves who had turned into federal soldiers, were, in the opinion of most Southerners, or the con- conviction of most Southerners, engaged in servile rebellion. That's what they called it at the time, servile rebellion, servile revolt. They had revolted against their masters. That cannot be tolerated in such a society. They controlled slavery by force, or the threat of force, or the fear of force. A slave who struck his master was subject to a severe punishment, even death. Was it better to run away and endure a flogging if caught? So these slaves who fled the South, joined the Federal Army, were actually, in their opinion, in their view, engaged in servile rebellion, and the punishment for that was death, of course. They dared to raise a hand against their masters, their owners. That was a very serious offense, as I just said, and subject to death. And the idea, personally, the idea that a black would fight a white man, again, was considered a fatal offense, because this raised the question, of again, of equality. Here they could deem themselves, the blacks deem themselves the equals of their white former masters, and fight them. Well, that uh, can't be tolerated. So this roused a great rage among, made their blood boil, as one man said, as one Confederate soldier said, any good Southern man makes, my, makes their blood boil, the idea of a black man raising his hand against the white man. So it was a... Uh, visceral thing, in effect, that they responded the way they did. That is to shoot wounded and captured black soldiers in many instances throughout uh, during the war, from the time that blacks first appeared in the field. You use an interesting uh, turn of phrase at one point in the book. You, you, you mentioned... Uh... Uh, you, you quote a, a black, or rather a southern white soldier, uh, saying that this this idea of fighting against uh, the, the black soldiers left him, uh, the, the word was, perfectly exasperated. Yes. Uh, uh, talk about that a bit. Well, yes, but exasperated does not have the same meaning as it then as it does today. Exasperated meant enraged then, not just annoyed. So you picture somebody today as sort of stamping their foot. I'm just so exasperated. But 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 visceral is, is a better term, as you just said. Uh, this, this was rage. This was incredible. Yes, exactly. anger. Yes, it couldn't be. Can't be endured. This is impossible. The nerve of these people. Not just not exasperating, but it's enraging. That's how they viewed it. Now, From then now, I'm judge. I'm speaking from um, reading many 
many letters and diaries and journals written by soldiers at the time who took part in all this. This is how they thought and how they felt and how they wrote about it at the time in journals and letters and um, diaries. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you about sources. And and so this... You, you found soldiers who were willing to, to express these thoughts in their, yes. in their letters home. They were yes. not ashamed of them. No, no, not at all. Although usually it's somebody else who does the killing. I've never found one yet that admitted doing it himself. It's always the boys did this, uh, the other fellows did this. But I've never found one yet that admitted doing it himself. Well, that's very interesting. Do you do you think that this means maybe less of it went on, or or that they they no, really no, did have well, a certain... went on, all right? But uh, don't forget that uh, there's a great deal of difference between the North and the South and the way that they viewed blacks, whether it's uh, black people. In the North, there's a great deal of prejudice. In the South, it was a oh something akin to a uh, a beneficial a, a, a uh, they felt themselves the patrons of the black people, who they called servants. They didn't call them slaves, generally speaking. Uh, the politicians would. But um, personally, uh, this black, uh, a white Confederate soldier would write home and say, say hello to all the servants. So uh, it was a different uh, view between, of black soldiers between the North and the South. In the North, there was prejudice. In the South, there was this patrimony, the, the feeling that um, we're taking care of these inferior people who are our servants, or slaves, really, because they certainly sell them and buy them as slaves, not as servants. So, uh, it's a, don't forget, we're not there it was a different time, a different world, so to speak. And it's hard for us, I think, today to grasp all the uh, feelings and the thoughts that affected these people at that time. I think that that's absolutely right. I, I wrestle with that in the classroom, trying to get undergraduates to see slavery in its context, not, not excusing it by any means but understanding it in its own time as opposed to from our point of view. Now, your, your comment about the, the, the patronizing view that the white Southerners took toward, uh, toward black Southerners, uh, treating them as slaves that had to be cared for, that must have contributed, I suppose, to this policy and that there's such a sense of betrayal. Yes, there is that, a sense of betrayal. And often spoken of by, or mentioned by black, I mean by white Southerners by white by Confederate soldiers, they felt betrayed by their former servants, whom they cared for, um, and become um, in many cases friendly with them, and so they felt it was a, a giant betrayal to suddenly find them fighting them. As a matter of fact, I remember reading um, about the during the Battle of the Crater, a black soldier tipped his hat or saluted a. Confederate officer who had once owned that same black soldier. So there was a sense of, yes, of betrayal. Now, the, 
the, the, the I mean, there are so many things mixed in here: the sense of betrayal, the sense of rage at, at the, uh, the that black soldiers would dare to to fight. Um, you, you talk about the the strain of violence that that runs through the whole institution of slavery and and through. Uh, the, the southern concept of manhood that one one uses violence to uh, uh, to enforce his position when necessary. Um, given all these factors, let me ask you the question from the other side: Why didn't uh, why wasn't every battle like Fort Pillow? Why didn't was there anything that that kept these impulses in check that, that kept white southern soldiers from killing every black soldier they saw? Well. The circumstances would circumscribe uh, that sort of action often. Um, when they were fighting black soldiers alone, then they had felt free reign to do as they pleased or as they wished to do. But when they fought a mixture of black and white federals, then they felt a certain amount of constraint because of what they might expect or feared or worried about in the way of retaliation by the whites. So, and besides that, uh, there weren't that too, there were many examples of black federals arrayed against federal, uh, Confederate forces alone. But more often, it was a mixture. So that uh, acted to uh, control their actions or subdue their actions. Now, if the, the, the white Confederates feared retaliation from from the North, uh, was there any retaliation during the war? Not really. President Lincoln promised retaliation, as you recall. He said for every, uh, after Fort Pillow, he promised that um, if this is true, then we will retaliate. You may be sure it never occurred. It simply did not happen, even though he promised to do it. Because, again, it's a question of equality. The Confederates, if uh, the North retaliated against the South, then the South would counter-retaliate, and who would suffer? White soldiers. Because there weren't that many black soldiers in comparison to the number of white soldiers. So the South would be compelled to retaliate against some white soldiers. And again, the question of equality, is a white soldier to be sacrificed for the sake of a black soldier? No, the answer is no. Nobody would stand for it. That's my opinion anyway. Well, certainly we don't see the, the, the hanging of, of, of white southern prisoners in retaliation or, or actual executions. Um, but there is the cessation of the prisoner exchange. Uh, when, when the southern government refuses to exchange black prisoners, uh, the federal government cuts off uh, the exchange of prisoners altogether. Does that... Well, I suppose you might call that a form of retaliation, yes, and that um, the exchange cartel was suspended because of the, North, the South's refusal to exchange blacks. Yes, so that is, you're correct. That is a form of retaliation, isn't it? Sure. So, and, but then again, that also points out does support your argument in that it was unpopular in the North. There were those who said, "Our our boys are starving in Andersonville because we're doing this on behalf of the black soldiers," and and yes. white Northerners resented that. Yeah, uh, some did. Yes, sure, because there weren't that many black soldiers in captivity, 
After all, most uh, never made it to a prison camp. I don't know. That nobody knows the exact number that were confined in prisoner of war camps. I know they fared badly, that's for sure, because um, they're mistreated and given bad rash, ration, rations and made to perform the um, somewhat odious tasks, burying the dead and what have you. So there weren't that many black soldiers in captivity. And uh, the whites had to suffer for it, that's true. But then um, the northern civil population didn't realize all this at the time. They didn't know how many, uh, exactly how many, nobody knows even right now, how many blacks were in captivity, how many, uh, well, they knew how many whites, roughly. But so it didn't cause such a stir as it would have if the South had killed white soldiers in retaliation, uh, given um, that the North struck back at the South for executing black soldiers, then the South counter-retaliates. You see what I mean? You have an escalation, then, of yes. a hanging match back and forth. And yes. In, especially in wartime, you never know where that's going to end. That can yes. uh, only get worse. So uh, uh, well, so Lincoln refrains from that uh, uh, and uses words, but but not deeds, to try to curb the Confederate uh, response. Well, as you point out in the book, there this being a de facto policy executed by the, the men on the ground, uh, their officers uh, frequently seem to respond to the Union charges by saying, well, we didn't want this to happen, we didn't order it, we tried to stop it, the boys just got going. Yes, in some cases they did try to stop it, that's true. Confederate officers would try to stop the uh, murder or the execution of black soldiers, wounded or captive. That's true, they did. Um, but usually uh, they were unable to restrain their enraged and vengeful troops. They couldn't stop them. Eventually they would. Uh, the, the frenzy would die down, and there'd be a few black prisoners. There's always survivors. Mm-hmm. Well, and this happened, as you point out in your book, at places besides Fort Pillow and besides uh, the crater. Uh, uh, Ola Stee in, in Florida is one. Uh, Plymouth, North Carolina is another place. Um, and, and there are literally a dozen others that you write about, so it's not uh, not isolated. And I have to say, I found this book very interesting from that point of view. The uh, uh, It does address issues that, that, that pretty much anyone who's, who's read much about the war has, has heard of. Uh, but looking at the blurbs on the back of the book, I see uh, John Marzalek, uh, Peter Carmichael, um, uh, James Hollinsworth, uh, people who've, who've written quite a bit about the war uh, all agree that this is uh, an eye-opening uh, exposition here. This is, this is uh, putting these all together and showing the, the interrelatedness of the, the motives behind them uh, really does make clear that, that black soldiers faced a, a very dangerous situation on the battlefield, not just in the fighting, but after the fighting. And that, uh, I think, is a useful thing to, to look at. Um, do, do you ever, do you, in terms of the book itself, do you ever find resistance from people who, who don't want to hear this story? Well, yes, and don't forget... Um not all historians will agree that such 
an extensive slaughter took place, for instance, in North Carolina, Plymouth. Some will argue that not that many were killed. Or not that, even that, not that many black soldiers were present to be killed. So, so, so there's uh, uh, there still a contradiction there. Um, George, we're going to take another short break. We'll come back in just a minute, talk some more about uh, this very intriguing, uh, if disturbing, uh, aspect of the Civil War. We're talking with George Burkhart, author of Confederate Rage, Yankee Wrath. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Not all historians accept the idea that the Civil War was marked with atrocities on both sides. We'll talk about that question when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. My husband and I, we met at a strip mall dance. He was 20, I was 17. It was a beautiful strip mall built by my grandfather after he'd emigrated from Holland to be a farmer. Anyway, when I saw my husband at that dance, I realized I'd seen him before at a big rally at the highway on-ramp. For all the men who'd enlisted, he was going to war. Two weeks later, he left for basic training. Oh, I cried my eyes out that day. His train left the car dealership. But we rode to each other every day. I rode my bike the ten miles to the high-rise each morning, just so I could meet the mail when it got there. Four years later, he came home to me, and we married at the little convenience store downtown. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with George S. Burkhart, whose book, Confederate Rage, Yankee Wrath, is an exploration of the de facto policy of Confederate soldiers not taking black prisoners, of executing them on the battlefield rather than holding them. Uh, George, we ended our last segment talking about the fact that not all historians uh, buy into this uh, idea equally. Uh, many do. Many know of individual incidents like Fort Pillow you mentioned. Uh, uh, but but even Fort Pillow for many years was controversial as to whether it was a massacre by forced troops or, or whether that was exaggerated. Although I think the, the weight of evidence certainly uh, justifies the term massacre. Uh, but you mentioned uh, the, the, the fighting at Plymouth, North Carolina on the, the eastern coast where... Uh, Again, black uh, 
soldiers and civilians uh, were killed. Uh, another example you give in your book is what happened at Saltville uh, near the end of the war. Uh, Thomas Mays, who has written about Champ Ferguson, the notorious guerrilla, argues that, that Ferguson uh, murdered in cold blood a number of black soldiers after the, the fighting at Saltville. Uh, but William Marvel, who's both Mays and Marvel have been on the show, uh, it has an opposite view that, that this was all exaggerated. Uh, you clearly side with Mays in that point, uh, and in all of these points, that, that these massacres did take place. Um, what, what's the evidence, and how do people argue against these, these massacres? Well, Marvel, William Marvel, um, counted uh, returns and uh, casualty reports and so forth, um, and came to the conclusion that this didn't happen. Only a, a small number were perhaps murdered. Whereas uh, Mays and others have gone further, examined records in the National Archives, and came to a different conclusion. And I found that another regiment, this is getting down to small details, but another regiment, not often, not usually listed as present, was present or a portion of this one regiment on the 16th, the United States Colored Troops. So all combined uh, with Mays and the, the research done by some private people and my own research led me to believe that the higher figure was the accurate figure. And uh, Marvel was entitled to his opinion, of course, and his own conclusions was wrong. I still think that is the case. And I'm sure uh, Mays does, too. So the evidence that you're finding supports, uh, in the case of Saltville and, and uh, others, that these massacres really do did take place, uh, really are there. Um, let me ask about responses to them again. We talked in the last segment about how Lincoln responded by threatening uh, retaliation, but it was never carried out. But you point out in your book that uh, on the battlefield itself, uh, when black soldiers were engaged in combat, sometimes uh, they would would give no quarter. They would they would shout, "Remember Fort Pillow," and would execute Confederate prisoners. Yes, uh, exactly. Yes, that happened. Uh, no question about it. Yes. Well, let's talk about that. What what. Uh, well, the so best example, of course, occurred at uh, the crater, because uh, there, there were many people, many witnesses, both black and white. Of course, at the time, they're not. Well, anyway, um, um, many white witnesses, and personal letters, and diaries, and so forth, uh, testified that that happened, that the black soldiers executed, captured, Confederate white Confederate soldiers in retaliation for Fort Pillow and for what had happened at uh, at the crater and in other places. Sure. There's no question about that. So uh, it, I think you quote Forrest as saying that this was, uh, that Fort Pillow actually ends up being a mistake uh, besides its obvious moral uh, problems that it ends up being a motivator for the black soldiers. Yes, indeed, it did. It was a strong motivator for black soldiers. That became their battle cry for, remember, Fort Pillow. 
and they uh, pursued and proceeded to uh, execute that motto. Remember Fort Pillow? Execute the bond of white Confederates when possible. So it was a dog-eat-dog affair, a uh, private civil war between the white Confederates and the black Federals. Yes, given the opportunity, the blacks did the same thing. Yes. The the the, the focus of your argument and, and what most of the book concerns is this uh, this dynamic between the the white Confederates and the black federal troops, uh, with with this rather overwhelming preponderance of, of atrocity taking place by the uh, Southerners against the Northerners, uh, and then at, in, at the end of the book, you you look at another aspect of this kind of execution of uh, prisoners uh, late in the war when Union troops are, are moving throughout the South, when Sherman's men are in Georgia, when uh, Sheridan's men are in the Shenandoah Valley, and you have the uh, much more interplay with the civilian population, where, where there are the threats of houses being burned or barns being burned. Uh, Union soldiers who got separated from their units, whether they're out foraging or whatever, uh, were likely to be executed by uh, by Confederate soldiers that captured them. Uh, this, if any place is going to have an escalation of violence, it looks like you'd see it happening here. Yes, uh, this did happen. Confederate soldiers began executing some Confederate soldiers began executing captured white Federal soldiers, and. There was some retaliation during Sherman's counter-retaliation, let's say, during uh, Sherman's march to the sea when subordinate generals pleaded with Sherman to allow them to uh, retaliate or counter-retaliate. And what what form did that counter-retaliation take? Execution. Execute captured uh, Confederates. So, so I mean, it, um, given the and the war lasted a little bit longer, it would have been um, a very fearful affair, a very bloody affair. Where take no prisoners, Polly would have become the norm. But fortunately, the war ended before that happened. Yes, it, and it happened in Shenandoah Valley also, but probably. Um, more so during Sherman's march, when his men, don't forget, burned and also robbed and looted. And the Confederates um, retailed tales of rape also, although really there wasn't much rape during the Civil War. But they did that to stir or arouse their soldiery so as to enable them to fight harder or um, persuade them to fight harder against the North, which was in the ascendancy by that time, don't forget. It doesn't make much sense that the Confederates began to execute captured white soldiers at that time when they're obviously losing the war, but on the other hand, that's we see that in hindsight. Many Confederates at the time still thought that they had a chance to win, to survive, maybe through intervention, maybe some magical thing would happen, who knows. They could look back at George Washington at Valley Forge or Morristown and say, if, you know, the, the war's not over till it's over. Uh, uh, no one would have thought Washington could have defeated the British Empire. Yes. Um, but 
uh, with that small band he had uh, during the winter, but but he was able to do it. Um, let me change topics for a minute. We have just a, a short time remaining, and uh, I'm holding here another book with your name on the cover, and as a full-time scholar, I'm envious of your productivity uh, to produce uh, two uh, very interesting books in the same year. This one is called Double Duty in the Civil War, The Letters of Sailor and Soldier Edward W. Bacon. And it looks like this is an example of the kind of uh, sources you were talking about, a primary source. Um, Can you give a a, uh, 90-second description of who Edward Bacon was and where he served? Yes, this young man entered the Navy first as a uh, captain's clerk, which is a, a position that does not exist today, but did then, was an enviable position. He served as a the captain, the captain of a ship, the, wait, as a secretary of a captain of a ship. Roughly, that's what he did. Mm-hmm. But he did, um, he acted as his runner or as a signal officer, what have you. So he served in the Navy. And then, after a, about a year of uh, absence from the armed forces, he entered the Army as an officer and served with the Black Regiment from Connecticut. And serve finished the war in that capacity. So he did double duty as both both as a sailor and as a soldier. Which is not a not a typical thing at all. No. It happened sometimes that a man would first serve in the army and then enter the navy, but uh, not vice versa. So it was a very interesting uh, series of letters and a partial diary narrating his service and the armed forces during the Civil War. And he's a young man, 18 when he entered, uh, what, uh, 21 or so when he finished, um, when the war ended. So he saw a lot of the war, both on sea and land, and from west to east. And, and the service with the uh, the USCT, well, first with the 29th Confederate Colored Regiment and then the uh, United States uh, Colored Troops Regiment, uh, adds to that, those kind of accounts are also... Uh, not as common and are particularly uh, valuable. It's a, it's a very interesting book. This, uh, unlike uh, the book we've talked about today, uh, I have not been able to read this one thoroughly, but I'm very much looking forward to it, just skimming it. Uh, Bacon seems like a very interesting character uh, and a good writer and uh, had a, a wide range of experiences. So uh, a book our listeners may well want to uh, take a look at. Well, it's an interesting book. It's kind of a fun book, too. Uh, about this young man, how how he grows and matures during his years of service. So, and it does cover he does cover a lot of territory. Uh, just a quick answer: Where did you find uh, Bacon's letters and diary? Oh, the American Antiquarian Society. Yeah, well, a, a good source for for this kind of material, certainly. Yes. Well, George, I really appreciate you being on the show today. I enjoyed, uh, maybe enjoyed is the wrong word, I was enlightened by uh, Confederate rage, Yankee wrath, and uh, I I think our listeners will will learn something from it, too. Thank you for being on the show. Well, I appreciate your having me. I enjoyed it also, or um, if that's a word. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I hope so. Well, listeners, thank you for listening this week to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks 
again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.